Hi, everyone. Julian here from Global Macro Investor uh, with another update. For those of you who uh, don't know me or haven't seen me, I head up Global Macro Research at Global Macro Investor with Raul. And I've been coming on um, this year doing kind of a number of updates around our core thinking on the business cycle. And I thought that today would be an interesting time to come back and update you on our views um, for Q4. Now, for those of you who watched the last In Focus from Raul, what we did is we went through um, a presentation around Tesla and this big kind of inverse head and shoulders pattern. And then we worked backwards from that bullish chart to construct kind of a narrative around what would be required for that to break out, right? So we covered that from a number of different angles, you know, from macro to liquidity. And I thought that I would do the same thing again today, um, start with a chart, and then we would kind of talk through around what would be required um, for it to kind of all kick off and take place. So what I'm gonna do today is I'm again, uh, gonna run through a presentation with you guys, starting with a chart, and then we'll look at it from all kind of core angles, including the business cycle, um, inflation, sort of our thoughts around um, where we are in the cycle via early cycle, late cycle, because that's another extremely loud narrative in the market right now, um, as well as liquidity and um, importantly, also sentiment. So I'm going to pull this up. So the first chart I want to show you, and this is the chart that is going to be the basis around this presentation, is the chart of S&P seasonality versus the current price trajectory that we've seen so far this year. And for those of you um, who aren't totally familiar with seasonality, essentially what I'm looking at here is the average uh, price trajectory for the S&P 500 going back to around 1960, um, perhaps a little bit sooner, but again, a very good historical composite um, of uh, daily returns. And what you can see is so far this year, we've been tracking this historical period with around a 91% correlation. And as you can see, Q4 tends to be the most positive patch uh, for equities, again, going back um, to around uh, 1960. Now, this is also true of, on the next chart, here is the semiconductors ETF. Now, we've been long semiconductors all year. Um, for those of you that are familiar with our work, you know, GMI is really about the business cycle. So we use that as our, uh, our cyclical framework, um, but it's also about the secular framework. And so exploring the exponential age, um, our thoughts around the secular trends in technology, um, crypto, and that kind of uh, how that all comes together and when, most importantly, we add to our secular bets due to where we are in the business cycle. So this is really what we're looking for here, right? It's opportunities to add to our secular bets at inflection points in the business cycle. And again, here is a chart of, um, of semis and Q4 tends to be that really kind of oversold or sorry, that very explosive period um, for semis. And if we look at the long channel, um, if you pull it up on Bloomberg or something, you'll see that we're minus two standard deviations oversold versus that channel. So this is an interesting chart. And from a very high macro level, if we look at the next chart, 
you can see that the semiconductor cycle is still in the process of bottoming, right? We're still in very early days. And we've been showing this chart, um, you know, for really a number of months now. And it's a good global lead indicator, or a, I would lead indicator, coincident uh, economic indicator of, or barometer of how global growth momentum is behaving. So again, trying to start with that chart on seasonality. Now I want to work backwards and look at what needs to happen um, in order for that to take place. And what I think needs to happen is the ISM needs to continue higher, which I'm going to go through a couple of charts now on the base case for that. Um, I think also, you know, we need to dispel the late cycle narrative and, you know, this needs to not be late cycle, but, you know, early cycle, which I'm going to get into. We need to see some kind of improvement and we've seen improvements in ISM, but we need to see a recovery in foreign demand. So let's say uh, an improvement in countries outside of just the US. Um, we also need to see uh, core CPI head lower. And the reason I'm specifically targeting core is because I'm talking about central banks here and I'll come into um, how to think about inflation a little bit later. Uh, weaker employment data. And I'm really talking about unemployment here. We're going to talk about the latest uh, payrolls number as well as a couple of other numbers here in September um, and get through that. Um, so I'd like to see those numbers weaker into Q4 because I think that that gives the Fed cover um, to basically stop QT. So again, there we're, we're going to talk about liquidity. Uh, and then I'll basically wrap things up on sentiment. What we're trying to do here is in order to get this seasonal pattern correct um, and see the, the kind of the melt up that that chart is implying is uh, we want to catch basically the bears off sides, right? So we want to see depressed uh, sentiment there. So we're going to do that as well later on. Now, um, in terms of growth, the first chart I think is always very helpful to start with is the GMI business cycle dominoes, okay? Um, and what this is, is the uh, showing the ISM leads versus lags. Uh, so again, for those of you who have been in the pro tier uh, for this year, you will have be, be familiar with this chart. But just as a quick reminder, anything to the right side of T equals zero, ISM leads the ISM. And anything at T uh, equals zero and negative lags the ISM. And so Raul and I have really been focused on our lead indicators like uh, the GMI financial conditions index, new orders to inventories, which is, tends to be where uh, risk assets operate. And it's important just, I'm going to name a couple data points. Only a few are on here because otherwise it gets really confusing. But just to understand that basically everything else is lagging. You know, at minus one month, you have overtime hours, right? So hours worked at, you know, minus three, you've got durable goods. You've got capital goods orders. You've also got GDP. So that's at that minus three versus ISM. At minus four, you have industrial production. Um, you've got things like imports and exports. So that's at minus four. At minus five, you've got cyclical job growth. So there I'm talking about manufacturing, uh, construction. At uh, minus seven, you've got unemployment. Excuse me, at minus six, you've got unemployment. And these are average lags, right? Um, at seven, CPI. And then all the way back, you've got things like wages and CPI shelter, the most lagging elements um, of the business cycle. And even if you come back up, you know, at minus two, you've got things like retail sales. 
again, it's just the, the bulk of this data really lags the ISM. So in terms of ISM, what's actually been happening and what have we been talking about? Well, the our ISM momentum index, right? Here we're talking about a six-month lead versus current ISM had been projecting that the ISM would start to rise, right? And is currently suggesting a seven-point rise in ISM by March of next year, which would suggest an ISM of around 53, you know, by um, during Q1 of next year. And this is also in line a little bit less of a lead, but here we're looking at another one of our lead indicators, which has been um, pretty much spot on uh, recently, suggests that the ISM will be a little bit higher, but mid 50, mid 50 regions, um, region by, by Q1. So all of these, you know, uh, our forward looking indicators have turned higher. And, you know, looking back at where we were in Q1 of this year, this is really what we've been calling for. And you have to remember via the, the business cycle dominoes chart that equities um, bar anything, you know, systemic or entrenched will tend to front run the ISM. And that's what they've been pricing in, which is why um, during our New York interview um, that Raul and I did, I think it was back in February, you know, we were already talking about this happening and that this was going to be priced in um, and that the ISM would shortly turn higher. And even if some of our lead indicators were pointing lower, because some of them were split, right, suggesting that the ISM could go a little bit lower, we said that that was already in the price of equities and that, that had been priced in in Q4 um, of last year with an ISM of around 45 being priced in with the S&P 500 and something like 37.7 in the NASDAQ. So we said, even if it does dip lower, which again, um, I mean, was our base case early Q1, but then we saw kind of everything turning higher. So we switched gears, but we were already saying that it wouldn't really matter for equities and that they would trade higher because they had already priced it in essentially. Now coming in a little bit closer, now we're coming into new orders uh, minus inventories. So at three months versus current ISM, again, we saw another big rise um, in September. And even when we look at the coincident market data, and I mean coincident versus ISM, you know, enrichment Fed numbers in September exploded higher. And it's exactly the same thing when you look at the Empire survey for future new orders. This is really the outlook for new orders uh, over the next six months. I mean, big, big moves. And this is, um, again, what we've been expecting and talking about. And part of the reason why equities um, have been grinding higher um, this year, despite, um, you know, a, a correction over the summer months. Now, so just covering, coming back to that seasonality chart at the beginning, as I say, let's look at this chart, say what would need to be true in order for this to happen. And one of those is that, um, you know, the manufacturing sentiment would need to trade higher. And we think that that happens, right? Looking at these continues to happen. Um, looking at these ISM lead indicators. Now, public enemy number one right now, and there's three of them. There's, this is late cycle. Public enemy number two is um, uh, inflation. No, public enemy number two is actually the, the, the credit crunch that's coming. And public enemy number three is um, inflation's sticky and it's going to remain higher. So let's talk about 
public enemy number one, which is that we're late cycle. And I, I really like, this is his, how I've always thought about the business cycle is I've um, taken a, a series of indicators, which, um, and you can see here, we're talking about equity valuations. We're talking about the yield curve. We're talking about earnings, margins, um, labor market conditions, which I'll come to in a minute, CEO confidence. And you can see that really in Q4 of 2021 and early Q1 2022, that was economically speaking, um, we were at levels historically consistent with a late cycle economy, right? Wages were still rising, now they're falling. Job openings were still rising, now they're falling, right? The yield curve wasn't quite inverted um, then, but it was nearly, I mean, 15 bips from inversion or so by March of 2022. So we were very close. So the yield curve was very flat. Um, evaluations were expensive. They since come down. So the point is when you look at the total number, while um, we were at 94%, uh, as I say, with this region of uh, Q4 to Q1 of 2022, we've since come down to 44%. The ISM peaked. It's now troughed. Inflation was extremely high. It's now come down. And here I've excluded shelter, the lagging component. Um, labor market conditions, people are looking at the 3.8% unemployment rate. But there again, I'm not talking about the unemployment rate because as I said before, that's lagging versus the ISM. Um, so you need to be focused on leading indicators of employment. And that's what I have within this, um, this framework. So that's come down already considerably. What else? What else can we look at? CEO confidence. CEO confidence was extreme. It's now bottoming. We're going to look at that in a second as well when we get into um, kind of the, the, the credit crunch um, public enemy, number two. Um, so the second or, or part of this late cycle thing, and as I mentioned earlier, is what we, there's a lot of people still talking about foreign demand remaining weak in 2024. But the point that I've been making for a while now is that it's already very weak. And if you look at Eurozone imports from non-European countries, it's very likely that Europe's already in recession. And we've been talking about this for a couple months. Um, and also, you know, countries like South Korea, their imports have been improving over the last two months, which is, um, you know, again, what we've been expecting. But you can see that this was basically recessionary levels a couple of months ago. So foreign demand is already extremely, extremely weak. Um, but when you look at forward-looking in indicators. So here we're looking at the percent of EM countries with rising OECD country breadth. So the number of countries rising month on month, creating a diffusion index. And this is advanced 11 months versus South Korean ex, uh, imports. So you can see here, we're really talking about an environment where over the next three to six months, these numbers should be higher. And it's also highly inconsistent to see um, the ISM turning higher without global exports also turning higher because the U.S. tends to be um, leading in the cycle. Now, beyond, um, beyond economic momentum turning higher, uh, what we're also seeing is, and, I, and again, I've shown this chart a couple of times now, it's interesting to watch it progress because I had shown this chart when we fell below 10% of countries um, with lead indicators above trend, the way to think about this above trend being 50 and expanding. Um, we felt 
we were below 10%, historically speaking, going back to what is it, 1965 or so, every time we've fallen below 10%, it tends to be a pretty good, uh, or I should say a very good, a strategic buy signal for equities. And I think I showed this at 16% a couple of months ago, so we were rising. Now we're at 29%, but we're nowhere near, you know, the levels that would, you know, peak uh, economic levels within that late cycle framework. In fact, um, this is not included there, but you can very much see that uh, peak levels are, you know, not quite at 100%, but you know, clearly above that 80% level, consistent with um, a lot of the other indicators, right? When I say we get above that 80, per 80 percentile of the indicators included within that late cycle composite, that tends to be uh, signaling that we're late cycle. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. So, Public enemy number two is, as I said, the credit crunch. And we actually covered this, Raul covered this briefly um, in, it wasn't the latest in focus, um, but an update uh, as well in the pro tier, because this is something I've been talking about as well um, since really April in on Twitter or X, whatever. Um, and the point here is this is what people are really talking about. People keep saying, respect the lag. And I mean, I would say that that's overused, misused, kind of misunderstood. There are leads and lags in the business cycle. We've outlined them within the dominoes. But this is one, historically, this relationship between bank lending and bank lending standards. So here I'm basically looking at large, medium, and small firms within this CNI loan bucket, so commercial and industrial loans, as well as household credit. Um, and I've basically aggregated them all together to create this bank lending standards, um, all sectors bucket. And it's advanced 12 months versus bank lending. So what people are saying is remind the lag, bank lending is about to slow. And, you know, what I've, I've been saying, as I say, since basically April, when I wrote this thread on this, is that just like bank lending standards are leading versus um, actual bank lending, um, the ISM also leads bank lending standards by around 12 months. But again, going back to the GMI business cycle dominoes, the equity market tends to front run the ISM by around three months trading in line with those new orders to inventories. And then Raul and I are further out trying to anticipate these transitions. And so the point here is that the market tends to move in line, if not a little bit before the tightening in credit standards, but act, tends to look through the tightening in actual bank lending because of the lag. And more recently, if you look at this chart, you can see that the ISM has actually been perhaps even leading a bit further. And indeed, here there's a four-month lead versus uh, bank lending standards. Here I'm looking at bank lending anymore. We're going back to that lending standards metric. And you could see that, if anything, the tightening, the worst of it is now behind us with the ISM starting to base. And what's being implied by new orders to inventories is that we should see bank lending standards altogether starting to ease from here, or at least tighten less significantly, right? So turning higher. And you're also getting a sense of that. CEO's got, you know, a pretty good sense of what's going on at a high level, at a macro high level. Um, and, 
you know, conference board CEO confidence has been tried in trading higher for a couple of quarters now. It leads bank lending by around, uh, well, a quarter. So again, we're nearing the end of this tightening cycle, and that's what equities have started to price in. Very similar to our GMI financial conditions index, the worst of the tightening was already behind us in Q4 of last year. I mean, our financial conditions index was as tight as it was during the global financial crisis. Um, so, you know, something like 2.5 standard deviations, it was a really, really big move. And our um, financial conditions index was leading the Goldman Sachs measure, you know, by a number of months. And so people were still looking at the Goldman measure saying financial conditions are extremely tight, but they, they had already actually started to ease. So if anything, this data, the bank lending standards is leading, um, as I say, bank lending, but it's not a good leading indicator um, of the economy because the ISM tends to, to, to lead that by, um, you know, recently by around four months. And as we said, based on our lead indicators, the ISM is starting to base and should be back in expansion territory, you know, next month or the month after that, and well on its way to 55 by Q1 of next year. And coming back to this, this equities, you know, having already priced this in and financial conditions being as tight as they've kind of, um, since the global financial crisis in Q4, you can see here, here I'm not talking about bank lending, I'm talking about the standards component again, which is again, leading bank lending, actual bank lending activity by 12 months. The ISM, or sorry, the S&P 500 has already priced this degree of tightening last year, which is what Raul and I were arguing all, all along was that, um, you know, with equities down as much as they were in Q4 of last year that we've already priced in um, a significant tightening in bank lending standards and therefore bank lending with a 12-month lag. Um, uh, and that uh, essentially things couldn't really get a whole lot worse in terms of uh, the year-on-year -year comps and equities would need to price in uh, an increase in the rate of change because that's where markets discount. It's not the nominal index level that matters. It's actually the, the rate of change. Um, so, uh, again, financial conditions, uh, have loosened, sorry, loosened. Um, there's, they're starting to tighten a little bit now with what we've seen with the dollar. Um, also bond yields kind of remaining elevated, but the interesting thing about bond yields is given the year on year comps, even if yields are starting to rise a little bit more here, the year-on-year -year comp's still coming down, which in a way is is also an easing of um, financial conditions. And then, but the, the fact that commodity prices have also started to rise is tightening things. But so what we need to see is essentially um, what's been driving financial conditions looser over the course of from Q4 essentially through to um, the middle of this year was dollar weakness um, coupled with commodity prices. Uh, uh, falling as much as they did. Now those two um, tailwinds have become, you know, headwinds to an extent. But the fact that bond yields uh, in in year on year terms are still kind of coming down, that can create the next um, event of potentially a a rollover in the dollar as well. Because what's going on with the dollar is why the dollar's been bid recently is because what we've seen is on the left-hand side of the dollar smile when the U.S. when U.S. growth outperforms, the dollar um, tends to strengthen, which is what we've seen versus Europe and, uh, you know, 
countries like South Korea, which I showed you before. But the dollar also strengthens within our framework, our quantitative framework, which is winter when growth is lower and inflation is lower, which is essentially a, a scramble to buy safe haven assets, dollar included. Um, but at the low end of that dollar smile, essentially a period where global growth momentum starts to improve, um, uh, uh, we see synchronized global growth momentum, which is what I just showed you with the ISM versus global exports. That tends to be a phase where um, the dollar uh, is weaker. So um, that could also drive the next leg higher in financial conditions. But our, our GMI financial conditions index leads um, the ISM by nine months and it leads equity markets by six months, given that three-month delay that I've just discussed. So we have a view whereby equities, you know, might trade a little lower in Q1 of next year for a period of time um, before financial conditions start to ease again. But we we have a lead on that so we can monitor that is essentially now the public enemy number three is inflation. Okay. So sticky inflation. And I've covered this dashboard a couple of times. But the important thing is, from a very high level, is understanding uh, the split of inflation, right? So we're at a very strange, not strange, very normal point of, of, of inflation, whereby, you know, energy is 7% of overall CPI. Um, food is around 13. And then um, core is 80% of um, headline CPI. And within that core number, that 80% is split roughly at around 21% goods. Um, so commodities, X, energy, and food, and 59% um, services, of which that services is all basically rents or shelter. So you can see that here. I mean, basically goods inflation and energy inflation um, have already kind of done their thing. This is what drove headline lower over the course, um, in line with what Raul and I were talking about since basically May of last year during our last roundtable, we were saying inflation um, was peaking. So this is what's driven um, CP, headline CPI lower. But as you can see, the, the heavier component like shelter is still very elevated. Um, and that's 35% of, of headline and things like education, recreation. Um, these are also included in, um, CPI services and they're, they're not big weights they are around, you know, 5%, but again, all peaking. And so this is, we're at this stage now where, um, you know, commodities can start to trade higher. So I can show you that on this next chart, you can see that, you know, this is the Bloomberg commodity spot versus CPI. We can see that um, commodity prices um, are actually still negative in year on year terms, but they had plunged and this was driving the CPI number lower. Um, but it's also very normal if we look at the next chart that given where we are in the business cycle, so new orders inventories is leading commodity prices by seven months, that commodities will start to trade higher. But even things like food, which is, um, as I say, 13% of uh, CPI, you know, when you look at lead indicators for food prices, um, I mean, food prices are still on a year-on-year -year basis falling um, from something like 11%, you know, down to just above uh, four percent today, but fertilizer prices are still collapsing. Right, so that's a good lead indicator for food. But more importantly, um, the shelter component, uh, thirty-five percent of total CPI, is um, still coming lower and should continue lower well into twenty twenty-five because Case Shiller uh, house prices are leading by fifteen 
uh, months. And so, like I said, actually, I'm going to come back to the historical composite in a second, gets to a little bit later. But in terms of those sticky, um, this is the thing to focus on in terms of those sticky things. So the things that are large and lagging, um, there's still evidence that those are going to come down, including wages, right? There's absolutely no evidence out there. And we've been talking about this. We push back hard on, on wages um, basically all this year. But when you look at um, service sector wages from the Richmond Fed uh, in September, they continued lower, right? Similar to um, wage expectations for manufacturing. Again, new cycle low in September. Looking at the Atlanta Fed um, wage growth tracker. So here we're looking at jobs switchers collapsed again in August. And here's the thing is this is what we've been looking at is our lead indicators for wages. So despite all the hype and the talk and, you know, I, I mean, at GMI, I try and remain as data dependent as possible, right? I mean, there's a whole bunch of narratives out there around, you know, everything from where we are in the cycle to wages was another one. Um, to the credit cycle and, you know, again, trying to remain as data dependent as possible. And another chart here is the quits rate. So even in September, looking at the jolts, quit rate numbers, um, again, big down, right? And this leads the, the Atlanta Fed, Fed wage growth tracker by around nine months. So there's just, you know, no real evidence that um, wages will rise again from here. Yes, they're still elevated, but they'll continue to come down given where we are in the business cycle. Like when people, again, going back to the late cycle narrative, wages are rising in late cycle, not falling. Um, and then coming back to that um, historical composite, you can see that actually as energy inflation, and here we're looking at the, the major five historical outbursts of inflation going back to the 1940s, kind of see that inflation, uh, see headline comes down. It starts to turn higher for a period of time as, you know, the kind of the leading elements of inflation. So commodity inflation, lead, higher commodity prices leads to higher goods price, prices, which late in the cycle leads to higher services prices, services inflation. As those, as, as the forward looking stuff, commodity prices starts to turn higher and all of that really heavy stuff, actually Raul and his you know, folks did some great kind of hand visuals with that, you know, peaking, right? So the, 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 the sticky laggy stuff is, is peaking, but they haven't really done their move yet. And yet commodity prices, which are in total 28% of CPI, if you include the goods um, plus energy, but then you just have the shelter component alone, which is bigger than that, coupled with all the other things that I mentioned, as th these kind of, this move hasn't yet happened yet, and this is starting to happen, you know, CPI trades a little bit higher, and then reverses lower again, which is hugely non-consensus. I think everyone's of the view that um, CPI has uh, bottomed, and we saw something very, in well, we saw something also very similar um, in the late, sorry, the, um, yeah, the, the late 1940s. And this has been our kind of base case for inflation all along is, and this is not the triple wave of the 1970s, which was largely driven by demographics. But what we know now is that just not, it's not the same situation here. I mean, what we're looking at is post the 1940s is, um, as people, as the war ended, people left the military labor, for, labor force, entered the civilian labor force, um, and you saw a big influx in both demand and supply-related inflationary pressures, which sent inflation skyrocketing higher. Then in 1947, it peaked, 
uh, rolled over, bounced a little bit as those components started to, um, heavier components peaked, uh, you know, a commodity started to base around and then continued lower and went negative for a period of time and then spiked higher and then kind of worked itself uh, out. So this is very much our base case, not the triple wave um, of inflation during the 1970s. You have to think back that again, in, in 1945, so the baby boomers ranged from 1945 to 1965. At the time when everybody came home from the war, people literally, I mean, you know, families wanted to make, you know, make love, not war. And so we had, had a huge influx of births. Um, and that was what drove that demographic story higher during the 1970s, uh, inflation higher during the 1970s. And we just don't have that at right now. We know that birth rates are actually falling and birth death rates are, are collapsing, right? Um, so very different situation. So this is, this is sort of our um, base case, but also just to illustrate that, you know, about halfway down the peak in headline CPI, we tend to see a bounce. The other really important thing is looking at the latest GDP print, you know, you have this price index. And again, the business cycle drives inflation and not the other way around. So here we're looking at a two quarter lead. So this too suggests that um, CPI will head lower. The other thing is looking at inflation expectations. This is the one year break even, right? traded a little bit higher in August and September. And now is at a basically a new cycle low in October at 1.2%. Um, and the two year, uh, so two year break evens look like they're actually breaking lower now, right? So at 1.8%, which I think is interesting because I, I don't see a, lot, a whole lot of people talking about this, but essentially, so inflation expectations are falling. And when you look at the PPI numbers out of certain countries, I mean, look at Spanish PPI, minus 10% year on year. Germany, minus 13%. Norway, minus 37% PPI numbers. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's bonkers, but again, makes sense within what we've been saying all year um, is that, you know, due to the base effect, you know, you, with these big elevators up, elevator up, um, you know, tends to result in an elevator down. Um, and that's exactly what we've, what we've seen. Even if you look at trade services PPI out of the U.S., you know, we just went negative for the first time since 2017. So this is essentially markups around, um, around transport and um, uh, wholesale business lines. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Now, further up, again, the supply chain in other countries, here we're looking at the PPI numbers for China, India, South Korea, and Canada. And within kind of the um, my quantitative framework, we're starting to transition countries into summer. So rising growth momentum and rising um, uh, PPI numbers is this kind of PPI slowly starting to come around. Now, the confusing bit I think here for people is, you know, what are we trying to target here? And what we're trying to target at GMI, so what we're talking about is a, in, an injection of liquidities. We're trying to look at the Fed. And the Fed isn't focused on PPI. They're not focused on commodity prices. They're focused on core. Now, if you and I were, if you're, I mean, if you and I are having a discussion around and you're a developer, right, and you're looking at a certain number of commodities um, that you'll need and you're going to need, um, 
you're going to need that stuff basically heading into Q1, Q2 of next year. It's a very different discussion, right? We probably be having a discussion around buying some forward contracts targeting a certain month next year to hedge um, the rise that some of those, your input costs um, rise. So I see that far up the supply chain, right? I can see, um, you know, these, the PPI numbers, especially when I just showed you the numbers out of Europe or out of, you know, uh, Spain and Germany. I mean, we, we can go a little bit lower here, but the base effect starts to become extremely positive over the next couple of months. So I, I see that all happening. But the um, why I think uh, headline trades lower is because of all those very heavy things. But most importantly, because we're talking about the Fed here, what we need to talk, what we need to focus on is core. So here we're looking at CPI, all items, less food, shelter, and energy. And you can see already, if we exclude, if we look at core CPI, and we exclude the most lagging, heaviest component of CPI, we're already at 2.3%. You know, we peak well above 7%, and the base effect is still negative through this year. And so this is what the Fed is looking at, okay? And this is why we're focused on these numbers, is because what we're really talking about is an environment where the Fed has essentially covered to ease. And it's the same thing when you look at core CPI year on year. So here we're excluding the shelter component. You know, we're at four and a four and a half percent, call it. And the base effect's still pretty much a straight line down. And when we look at the core three-month annualized numbers, you know, we've gone from slowing to collapsing. Right. And so again, this is um, what we need to be focused on from um, a Fed's point of view. You know, I think as far as they're concerned, we're pretty much, you know, there, right? The cover to ease is not going to come from uh, lower or higher CPI numbers. It's really going to come from employment, which I'm going to cover next. But, you know, when you look at just to kind of hammer home the point that it's all about um, core in that central banks are just a delayed reaction function to CPI and why even if, you know, CPI continues to bounce here um, for a couple of months, we shouldn't be overly concerned because, you know, here you just look at Brazil was one of the first central banks to hike rates um, uh, back in 2021. And they um, have since cut rates twice and they cut rates again in September. And they're very likely to cut again heading into next year because they're really just chasing their core CPI numbers lower. This is my point is this is all about um, core CPI. And just to, again, illustrate here, we're looking at headline CPI, but of course, the lead is pushed out even further. I mean, look at this chart. It's the Bank of England. Uh, so now we know we, they paused at five and a quarter percent. And this is CPI year on year advanced uh, 12 months. And then where the, the solid line becomes the dotted line is essentially the base effect. So already, I mean, you can see that CPI is just above 6%. Um, this I mean, the Bank of England is really just a, the 12-month delayed reaction function to inflation cycles. And we know that CPI is extremely lagging. And so this is, again, why, as I say, we need to focus on the lagging bits of inflation because that's where central banks are focused. If you think back to the GMI business cycle dominoes, you've got ISM, right? And then you've got um, at kind of that minus seven to eight, eight-month mark is where central banks tend to operate via the data. And um, this all makes sense within what I'm showing you um, here. Now, the next thing we need to talk about is employment. Now, um, you know, surprise, surprise, uh, the uh, uh, payrolls number for September came in hot, 
right? Doubly hot, like double versus expectations. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and all and say, um, that's what we were expecting. If you look at our proxy, it was continuing, continuing to suggest um, that we would head lower. Now, we've seen still, we saw a couple of revisions higher over the last couple of months, but we've still seen six consecutive months lower um, of revision. So I'm not going to sit here and say that it wasn't a good print. It wasn't good print, but we need to kind of wait it out, right? And see what happens next because, um, you know, there's still scope for revisions versus this, you know, um, kind of on, ominous gap between some of our lead indicators. And also we've just seen revisions. So you, you, you know, you don't really know what to, to believe and just, you need to focus on the leads. And the other thing that's a little bit strange is that the ADP numbers for large firms in September cut jobs. So it's 83,000, uh, jobs in, um, job cuts. Also the Philly fed numbers for the future number of employees rolled over sharply, uh, and collapsed in September. And then when we look at, um, temporary help services. So here we're looking at short-term employment via, you know, kind of three to six month employment contracts, you know, continue to go lower in September. And the thing to think about here, um, is that, you know, generally, um, because temporary employment contracts are, um, a lot less dense in terms of, uh, you know, compliance and, 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 and legal, you know, it's a very, it's a lot easier to cut temporary jobs before you can cut, you know, say permanent jobs. And so this is, tends to be a leading indicator of overall, um, employment dynamics. And you can see coupled with what I just mentioned with ADP plus some of the Philly fed data. Um, this is sort of, I'm, I'm looking at these numbers and I want to see, look at them, continue to monitor, the, monitor them over the course of the next uh, couple of months, because I think that unemployment starts to tick higher. And so, and that's the core thing. I'm not going to take away from the payrolls number. I just, you know, I want to see what things look like next month because some of the data coming in that we've seen so far in September is very counterintuitive to that number. And if anything, we've seen all the payrolls numbers that we've seen so far this year haven't been true because we've had revisions. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at all this. So the unemployment rate um, came in at 3.8%, so it's flat, but in year on year terms, we're rising and sharply. Um, and now this is partially down to the extreme unwind of the COVID base effect, but only two other you know, times historically had we, had we seen rising unemployment in year on year terms, had it, has it been a false signal, right? All other signals have meant um, recession and when you look at forward-looking indicators of unemployment, right, via NFIB, so small business hiring plans, you can see that we're still looking, I'm still, you know, a four and a half unemployment rate, 4.5% 4, 4 unemployment rate is, you know, what this is suggesting. So, you know, roughly, let's say a 1% rise in unemployment from here seems about right. And it's not just this chart. You can look at the, NA, um, the um, home builder sentiment chart. You can look at the jobs plentiful minus jobs, jobs hard to get. So the conference board data, it all kind of points to the same thing, right? Um, and also if you look at U1 unemployment, so those, so long-term unemployment, those being unemployed for 15 weeks or longer versus the 12 month moving average, you know, it's a simple chart, but it's still a powerful chart. I mean, never have we been above the 12 month moving average. Um, for more than a month without that there being a recession. And so we were there again, I think it was 1.4% again, this month's data, the actual recession threshold, um, is 
basically a 50 basis point rise off the lows. So a 0.5% increase. And what I was saying, again, is we're looking for something around 1% in Q4 or by early Q1. And so that's really the trigger to look for. And then you, you know that we're, we're in a recession, right? Because we've never since 1950 been, have seen a rise in unemployment of around 50 bips off the lows without there being a recession. And the important point with this, as far as the Fed is concerned, is every time um, unemployment spikes by around 50 basis point, the Fed starts to cut rates. Um, and so with that in mind, going with kind of the more cowbell um, meme that Raul and I have been talking about all year, this just essentially, if unemployment does start to rise from here and we get that, you know, a continue con continuation of some of the lagging employment metrics, which is where, as I say, central banks are operating and focused on, it, it just means more cowbell, right? So they, they, they basically, you know, stop hiking rates, um, eventually cut rates, um, and some form of, let's say, also QE, which I'm going to come on to now. Um, so the next thing we need to talk about is liquidity. Now, as you will remember, um, I mean, we've been writing about, about a rise in liquidity um, as essentially all year, and we talked about it in our September GMI monthly of last year saying the turn was near. And we were looking at a lot of our lead indicators suggesting that the liquidity cycle would turn higher and our lead, indi lead indicators are still suggesting that we turn higher. So this is kind of a viewpoint of our, our current thinking that we're still in the lower ranges of a liquidity cycle bottoming and that we will accelerate into 2024. And this is what's happening. If you look at G5 numbers, so the Fed, um, the PBOC, the BOJ, the ECB, the, uh, the Bank of England, um, looking at the actual change year on year, we've, we've done nothing but rise. So this peaked in March of um, 2021, which was a couple of months before the ISM um, or the global PMI. And it bottomed in October and our lead indicators were pointing higher. And here we are, the, the year on year comp is rising. And again, like I said before, this is where equities tend to operate and price off of is the year on year rate of change. Um, and so we're very close to turning positive. And if you look at here is our weekly um, global liquidity index um, versus the ISM, which is here inverted in advanced 15 months. And the mechanism at play here is basically that the business cycle, um, as the business cycle slows, central banks tend to come in um, with a lag as a ballast to offset the economic weakness. Right? So they come in and they stimulate. And we're also entering this um, for those of you who have read the Everything Code, which is available at the pro uh, macro tier, you'll see that we're at this Q4 period, whereby what we're calling is um, the banana zone, if the Everything Code is thesis is um, hypothesis is correct, whereby the Fed will start to need to monetize prior business cycle debts by essentially throwing it on the balance sheet. Um, again, go read the Everything Code if you haven't, because... Um, if this is right, it, it really is the banana zone and not the banana zone. Like there's a peel on the floor. You're going to slip on the banana. Like this is totally bonkers. The balance sheet's going to go from, you know, 8 trillion to 15 trillion by 2026. The last thing that we need to cover is sentiment. Okay. So again, look, starting with that seasonality chart, what kind of needs to happen? And I said, we need to catch bears off sides. Look at this. I mean, th this is looking at the S&P 500 and the percentage of stocks trading with a 14 day RSI below 30. We're back to oversold. In fact, over 30% of the S&P 500 stocks 
were trading with a 30, uh, a 14 day RSI below 30 last week. Um, we've since come lower, but right at trend support. We've again, been showing this chart for quite a while. We broke out, uh, in early Jan, we retested kind of, um, you know, the breakout area, and then we pushed sharply higher and we've since come back to that trend and that 200 day moving average. And this is really the level that we, you know, need to keep an eye on, um, uh, to make sure that the trend is in place. But again, sentiment is very oversold. And it's exactly the same thing when you look at the percentage stocks trading um, above the 50-day moving average. We're currently at 70, 17%. Before that, we were at the lowest since October. And you know we flagged this chart back in late July when we rose above the 80%. Sentiment was a little bit extreme. And the equity market had also discounted around an 800 billion. 800? Yeah. I think that's right. Let me just check. I don't have the Fed liquidity number in here, but you know, a significant rise um, in uh, liquidity. So it had essentially gotten ahead of itself, and it and it. This is very normal early on in the cycle. We saw something very similar in 2018, 2019. Equities prices start to rise in anticipation of liquidity rising, and then they need to come back, you know, to essentially domestic liquidity implied fair value. So at the time um, that 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 we saw this big divergence, stocks were also overbought. And that dynamic has essentially completely unwound and we're not back to oversold. On top of that, um, when you look at the put-call ratio, we're back above you know, two and a half standard deviations. So sentiment is extremely bearish here. Um, and the last chart I'm gonna leave you with to think about is the seasonal composite that I showed you before, which is on the left-hand side. Um, and then the historical average, um, you know, seasonality for the S&P 500 in election years. Um, and so this is just to get you thinking. Election years tend to be very positive years for the equity market, um, you know, due to some combination of fiscal and monetary stimulus. You know, it's not a straight line hump, up, but overall, um, you know, tend to be really good years. So again, just starting with the seasonality chart, and working through what kind of what we think needs to happen in order for this melt-up to be true, growth momentum needs to continue to improve. We see that within our ISM lead indicators. Um, core inflation needs to continue to come lower in order to give you know the Fed some assurance around um, uh, around rates. Um, we need to see the unemployment rate tick higher. Currently, we're at three point eight percent. We're forty basis points off the low. We need to get to around fifty basis points off the low in order to see the Fed, um, you know, blink. Um, you know, the credit event that people are talking about, we think was largely priced in already last year. Um, and then liquidity needs to continue to rise. And as I say, based on our forward-looking indicators, uh, we very much anticipate that. Um, and then the last thing, as I said, catching the bears off, off guard, the sentiment met metrics are all basically oversold. So that's kind of the current, you know, that's our current, line of thinking. There's a lot more, obviously, to this, but I mean, I think we've covered quite a bit in uh, the hour or so that we've sat together. Um, and look, I hope it's been helpful for you and your overall investment thinking into Q4, um, you know, just some of our thoughts. And um, until I see you uh, all next time, take care. Good luck.